Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris. This is episode 19, Megaliths, part 1. So we have introduced the Neolithic and Chalcolithic periods of the Stone Age over the last three podcasts. One phrase that I have avoided using is Mesolithic. I did use the phrase Epipaleolithic to describe the Natufian culture who are heavily referenced in terms of the beginnings of the Neolithic Revolution. Allow me to clear this up in simple terms. The podcast series initially concentrated on the Australopithecines, who we most likely attribute to the earliest known stone tool culture, the Lamequium. This is the emergence of the Stone Age, which is also called the Paleolithic the Paleolithic is separated into three periods, which are the Upper, the Middle and the Lower. The Lower Paleolithic represents the period directly before the Neolithic Revolution. The Natufian culture represents a society who are thought to have been among the first societies who practised agriculture. We distinguish this by referring to them as Epipaleolithic. However, we can use Mesolithic in somewhat synonymous fashion. The Mesolithic period is the period that describes the ending of the dominance of hunter-gathering before it made way for agricultural ways of life. The Mesolithic is often used more in reference to Northern European cultures. We will be discussing these cultures quite a lot during the next two podcasts as the vast majority of megalithic and associated stone construction activity not associated directly with the building of dwellings is abundant in the west of Europe and particularly the British Isles. Gubekli Tepe Anyone who knows anything about megalithic constructions and its earliest evidence will know of Gobekli Tepe. However, with most megalithic constructions, its meaning and purpose is somewhat unknown. So maybe that gives us hot welders something to get our teeth into as we blow open the doors of discussion by describing what we see and exploring the expert theories like we have done so well for 18 podcasts so far. To begin with, Gebekli Tepe can be found in the southeast of modern-day Turkey. That's the easy bit out of the way. It's a construction of stonework. The earliest stonework at the site includes large stones in the shape of a capital letter T 
arranged in a circle. What possible purpose could a circle of capital letter T's have for the Stone Age people? What's more is that some of these capital letter T's made from stone are 20 feet high and weigh around 10 tons. So they are three and a half times the average height of the adult human being and the mass of the largest African bush elephant, which incidentally is the largest land mammal walking on the planet. So if I was to ask you to place a large stone letter T in the ground standing upright with it being three and a half times your height and the mass of a healthy mature adult male elephant I would suggest that I should wish you the very best of luck too. Let's not even consider the fact that we are talking about placing a number of these in neatly arranged circles. It appears that humans understood that in order to erect one of these megaliths, which by definition is a large standing stone, that they would have to hew the ground to create a hole large enough and deep enough to anchor the megalith so that it could support its own weight and not just simply fall over. The T shapes were made of limestone and some of them were carefully carved with depictions of animals. Now if we go back historically in our podcast we can see that the human desire to artistically represent the animal kingdom is a very common thing which became prevalent during the Aurignacian period when modern humans first moved into Europe after 40,000 years ago during the Lower Paleolithic period. We also had to guess the reasons for these animal depictions, possibly relating to some form of animism or spiritual worship for the animal kingdom or maybe even a general regard for the circle of life as the depictions range from lions to gazelles, from snakes to insects and from foxes to vultures. That is indeed if we have identified the animals correctly. It appears that the limestone slabs were cut from nearby so there must have been a substantial quarrying operation and a substantial amount of manpower in order to move the objects. So this must point towards a large scale operation which relied deeply on cooperative skill. Radiocarbon dating points us towards a possible date of 9000 BCE for the earliest layer of activity at the site. So to put this into context, it would be fair to say that agricultural societies were only just starting to emerge at this point and there is little evidence of them being firmly established. However, there must have been a considerable effort made by many dozens of people working together and possibly under some form of leadership. Even though we have not talked 
about leadership in terms of secular leadership and believe that there is a lack of evidence for any kind of royal hierarchy at contemporary villages such as Chatelhuyuk. We do recognise that there could have been a kind of shamanic presence within the tribes. So the people of these tribes may have been highly influenced by some kind of spiritual influence, which has pointed many experts in the direction of this being some kind of spiritual temple. It is very hard to be able to describe Gobekli Tepe as anything else when we attempt to directly compare it to anything else that we have already discussed. There is no evidence of sedentary occupation. There are no cooking hearths. There are no refuse piles, or at least none that are significant enough to suggest permanent sedentary occupation. The construction of the first stages of Gobekli Tepe seem to date to a time very soon after the younger Dryas, so it is not out of the question that its construction may have been in response to the environmental changes of the area. The popular theory is that Gobekli Tepe is a spiritual human sanctuary and a possible place of worship. However, whenever there is a discovery of a place like Gobekli Tepe that is shrouded in so much mystery, the basis exists for interest from many fields who can interpret the site as the work of not-so-obvious individuals ranging from Aboriginal Australians to interstellar aliens. Some have put forward that it could be a temple for the deceased and that the animals carved in the rocks are there to guard the spirits of the deceased. Some have compared the carvings to the map of the night sky, comparing the animal carvings to stark constellations in relation to modern astrology. My job is not to discuss the pros and cons of each of these theories as I want to stick to the story of human development and the history of humankind. However, the introduction of Gobekli Tepe is an introduction to the earliest known megalithic constructions and may interest you as the listener enough to want to explore further the wide-ranging and fascinating modern theories regarding its purpose. Certainly, we can see in many artistic depictions that there is a wide feeling that humans used wooden framework and ropes, likely manufactured carefully from fibrous plant materials, to move and erect these huge stones. And if this is the case, this may show a very early understanding of modern physics. Human beings would have had to have had an early understanding of creating inhuman amounts of power simply by using natural resources. So this once again shows cognitive advances on a level not previously discussed during the History of the World podcast. The original purpose for the construction of Gobekli Tepe is fiercely debated. There are even many pseudo-scientific theories being published which cannot be ignored and are 
even very interesting to listen to. However, what is just as fascinating as its construction is its abandonment. After 8000 BCE, Gobekli Tepe was deliberately buried as it stood in the earth. Why humans felt it necessary to do this over a thousand years after its initial construction is also a huge mystery. Atlete Yan If we head southwest from the modern Turkish state to the Levant coast of modern Israel, we can discover some more very old stone constructions. This time we need to look beyond the current coastline to where we believe more land was exposed when the sea levels were lower, around 7000 BCE. Around 10 kilometers offshore from Haifa in Israel, a number of discoveries have been made since the 1980s. The site has been named Atlit Yan and demonstrated the remains of rectangular buildings suggesting human occupation. It is now 10 metres underwater. This has not stopped explorers from finding out as much as possible about the site. Atlit Yam contains what appears to be one of the earliest known wells, a deep cylindrical construction. Many bifacial stone blades and flakes have been discovered at the site. It is believed that the occupants of this location were skilled hunters and fishermen due to the remains of animals discovered. From the human skeletal remains, there appears to be dental wear that would suggest the humans were constructing fibrous tools such as nets, which would have been useful for fishing. Clearly, from the remains, we can see that the occupants of Adelite Yam went through the process of domesticating animals. So this was an early example of Neolithic, sedentary and agricultural society. Going back to the rectangular buildings, it appears that excavators were finding success at discovering human remains underneath the floors of the remains of buildings. This points towards the same ritual practice of burying the dead under the floor, a practice carried out at Chatelhuyuk, a site we mentioned in episode 16. One of the most fascinating discoveries made at Atlit Yam is that of a circle of stones which surround a central stone believed to be in the centre of a natural spring. This is categorised as a megalithic structure and is believed to have had some kind of spiritual or ritual purpose. It is also interesting to note that two walls were constructed which appear to have flanked the approach to the megalithic stone circle and the path between the two walls points roughly in the direction of the sunrise around the time of the summer solstice. The site at Atlite Jam appears to combine the comforts of a sedentary agricultural existence similar to the residents at Chatelhuyuk with a spiritual or ritual purpose suggested by the site at Gebekli Tepe. 
There is no instruction manual for Gebekli Tepe or the Circle of Stones at Atlitiam, so we just have to keep guessing. Atlitiam appears to have been abandoned before 6000 BCE. Either the sea levels rose up naturally, preventing continual occupation, or there was a tsunami which engulfed the entire site very suddenly. The big question that we have to ask at this stage is what do these megaliths represent? There was certainly some degree of effort put into the construction of these megaliths. There was a lot of consideration invested into where the individual stones were placed and decorated. If we go back historically with our studies of ritual and in particular some of the burial practice which we discovered from the upper Paleolithic period then we can see that a great deal of time and devotion was being invested into ritual practices. So we can safely assume that those people building megalithic structures such as those at Gebekli Tepe felt that it would make a significant difference to life and indeed afterlife. Spread of megaliths. If we look at the continuing emergence of megaliths, we can see that they spread across Europe from around 6000 BCE, becoming very prolific in the fourth millennium BCE. This somewhat coincides with the spread of agriculture and sedentary behaviours across Europe. So it appears that around 6000 BCE, a wave of Neolithic culture started making a significant impact on the existing old European cultures. And these Neolithic cultures brought with them agriculture, pottery and megaliths. The Cromlech of the Almendres is a megalithic complex built in modern Portugal that dates back to 6000 BCE. It is interesting to note that a solitary standing stone, which we refer to as a menhir, was placed near to the Cromlech of the Almendres, roughly in the direction of the sunrise at the winter solstice. So there does appear to be a connection between megalithic construction and the activity of the sky. Therefore, we have to declare that these megaliths had no obvious practical purpose, as I think that if they did, then we would have figured that out already. The purpose of these megaliths has to be for ritual purposes. There must have been a strong belief in abstract benefits to motivate people to put such hard work and effort into the construction of such monuments. We can only see such levels of effort in some of the decorative clothings of individuals buried at various sites across Eurasia since the Aurignacian period began some 40,000 years ago. Humans must have believed that they would live to regret any lack of motivation to completely dedicate themselves to such work. Whether they would be made to regret it by a higher spiritual power or a human that represented a higher spiritual power, such as a shaman, is unclear. One of the most fascinating places to explore 
such megalithic works is the British Isles. There we see barrows, stone circles and henges among other things. So let us explore these objects further in a bid to understand what was going on in the minds of our Neolithic ancestors. The Prehistoric British Isles Britain is the place to go if you want to see barrows or tumuli. Essentially, a tumulus is a barrow, which in turn is the name that we give to old burial mounds. One of the most famous of these burial mounds can be found in the county of Wiltshire in modern day England and is called the West Kennet Long Barrow. Southern England is a place that is rich in sarsen stones, which are sandstone blocks and which are used in a great many of the Neolithic constructions to be found there. The West Kennet Long Barrow may have been built before 3500 BCE with the burial of almost 50 people taking place in one of the chambers inside the Long Barrow itself. Although it appears that the tomb was made inaccessible by the placement of sarsen stones and other earth debris, this does not appear to have happened quickly after the burial of the individuals. It appears that the Long Barrow was left open for around a thousand years, which has led some to suggest that it would have been a place to visit for ritual purposes. One thing we do know is that considerable effort by very many men would have had to have taken place to build such a barrow of this size. If we travel a short distance from the West Kennet Long Barrow, we can find a chalk hill which we call Silbury Hill. It is the tallest prehistoric mound in Britain and can be seen clearly from the nearby West Kennet Long Barrow. It seems that Silbury Hill was initially built around the time of the closure of the West Kennet Long Barrow in around 2500 BCE. But it does appear that we do not have a record of what it was built for, and the mysteriousness of its existence plagues us to this day. There was, however, a hill which already appeared to be occupied before West Kennet Long Barrow was constructed. This is Wingmill Hill and is something that we call a causewayed enclosure, which basically means that a perimeter was determined around the centre of the hill, which could act as a means to be inside or outside the enclosure. Nearby to all these things and connected by avenues of standing stones is a henge made up of stone circles which is now called Avebury. A henge is a kind of earthwork which involves a ditch being dug around a central point, not completely unlike the causewayed enclosure at Windmill Hill. By far the most interesting aspect of the henge at Avebury is the stone circles to be found there. 
So it does appear that there was a culture living in this area for many centuries who used stonework to construct burial pits and chambers which were apparently attended and attended to for many generations. There would also be the construction of causewayed enclosures and henges which in very simple terms are areas with boundaries. Sometimes these places would be connected to each other by avenues made out of stones. What does all of this mean? Well, firstly, this wasn't really an isolated culture. Over a thousand stone circles have been discovered across the British Isles, with even more instances to be found in Northern and Western Europe. So it does appear to be a very widespread culture and it does appear to have drifted across Europe from original stone temple constructions in the Fertile Crescent. So that tells us about the culture, but what about the reason? Let us summarise what can be seen right the way across the British Isles in a bid to get a good overview of the constructions. We mentioned Windmill Hill as something that predates West Kennet Long Barrow. This is an example of a causewayed enclosure that used to be referred to as a causewayed camp. There are perhaps around 80 of these causewayed enclosures that have been discovered and they are thought to be among the earliest earthworks dating back to 3500 BCE or five and a half thousand years ago to put it into a different perspective. When I say the earliest earthworks, I mean the earliest ones to be discovered in the British Isles. The one thing we can say with reasonable confidence about these causewayed enclosures is that they do not appear to have been lived inside. There is little evidence of dwelling construction which suggests that these enclosures were more likely to have been gathering places. It does appear that the Long Barrow construction started taking place at around the same time as the emergence of the causewayed enclosures. Some Long Barrows were stoneworks covered in earth, while others appear to be pure earthworks. They appear to be communal tombs, but there certainly isn't enough of them for these to be standard tombs for the deceased. It appears that Long Barrows were the resting place of a very small percentage of the general population. So this strongly suggests that the people who were buried here were very select for whatever reason. It also appears that some very strange activity was taking place with the deceased. It appears that the flesh was removed from the bones as opposed to it being left to decay. In some cases, there is evidence of burning of the bones. There is clearly some kind of ritual ceremony taking place at these long barrows due to the strangeness of the way the deceased were being treated. This has to be supported by the historical and contemporary construction of the other very strange stoneworks that we have discussed during this podcast, such as at Gobekli Tepe, at Leek Yam, and Windmill Hill. These stoneworks appear to have absolutely no 
essential practical purpose. They strongly point towards the abstract, the belief of an afterlife, the compulsions of animism, the fear of the consequences of a lack of honour for life and death of all things, whether they be human, animal, plant, mineral or spiritual. This is further supported by the discovery of strange vessels of metals and crop yields discussed in previous podcasts relating to the Neolithic period. New Grange Moving forward from the initial stone and earthworks of the British Isles, we can see the emergence of passage graves and chamber tombs, which in many cases are tombs built with wood or stone and covered in earth. These tombs often have a chamber which is the entrance to the centre of the tomb. They come in many shapes and sizes, and many experts agree that there was a very selective process to distinguish those individuals intended for passage grave burials, and those not. One of the most impressive examples of a passage grave is to be found in County Meath in the modern day country of the Republic of Ireland. It is believed to have been built around 3200 BCE. Now, I've personally seen a number of stone cairns, but Newgrange is really something special. It is 76 metres in diameter and 12 metres high. The outer wall, which contributes to the 12 metre elevation of the top of the mound, has been carefully constructed using stones. The surrounding curb stones are decorated with ornate artworks, not unlike the artwork on the stones at Gebekli Tepe around five and a half thousand years previously. The passage is marked at the entrance by a huge entrance stone and leads all the way down its 63 foot length to a central chamber. One extremely interesting feature of Newgrange is the roof box to be found above the entrance of the passage. This roof box is built for a purpose and the purpose is directly related to sunlight. Each year on the winter solstice, sunlight enters the roof box and travels along the 63 foot length of the passage, illuminating the central chamber. The construction of this passage grave was so careful and considered. There had to be some driving force compelling the population to build the perfect passage grave. Were they worshipping the dead? Were they worshipping the sun? Were they worshipping both? Did they believe that there was a connection between life on earth and the spirits in the sky. Stone circles. One of the most debated aspects of Newgrange is the stone circle that is believed to have surrounded the outside of the passage grave. 
Only part of the circle remains now, but there is debate as to whether the stone circle was constructed at the same time as the burial mound, or whether it was added to the site during the centuries after the site was first constructed. Stone circles are a very important part of our megalith story. Some of the most fascinating Neolithic remains are those stone circles and standing stone monuments which can be found across northwest Europe. The most famous of these stone circles is Stonehenge in the county of Wiltshire in modern England. Though we should point out that the stone circle at Stonehenge is actually a later addition to a site that was already functioning for many centuries. Standing stone circles is definitely something that can be traced back to Gobekli Tepe and the circles of T-shaped stones erected there. Another interesting site which provides a loose link between Gobekli Tepe from 9000 BCE in the modern country of Turkey to the megalithic cultures of the British Isles of the 4th millennium BCE is the Al Mendris Komlek, which we mentioned earlier in the podcast. This can be found in the Alentejo region of Portugal. Almendris Comlec is a collection of standing stones which were erected over a period of time beginning around 6000 BCE. The site appears to have been in use for around 3000 years and it appears to have been modified over time as well. There are around 95 stones still standing at this complex. A number of the standing stones or menhirs as they can otherwise be called are engraved while others have been deliberately smoothed. It appears that during the final period of activity at the site many of the stones were repositioned with an apparent regard to celestial objects. So there appears to be a very fierce connection between megalithic structures and celestial objects, not least of all the sun, with strong regard for the solstices, the longest and shortest days of the year. Next time we will continue the story of megaliths by discussing the amazing and world famous site of Stonehenge. We will look deeper at the progression of the megalithic culture right up until its very strange cultural disappearance around 3000 years ago. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast that bounce back to this very strange spiritual ritualistic culture of human evolution that we find it so hard to put our finger on the reasons for. I received a very kind recommendation from um, Adam Beculart. I hope I've pronounced your name correctly, Adam. Um, and he's uh, recommended the History of the World podcast on our Facebook page, saying it's well presented, all facts checked, and if scientifically controversial, all views explained. Loving it, very informative, would recommend to all science freaks. Thank you, Adam, for that. Um, I've actually got another message to read out, and it's quite—it's uh, a little bit embarrassing to be honest with you, but I'm just going to go for it. Uh, 
Now, the podcast received a very, very, um, what turns out to be a very important message. It was a personal message sent from John Martinson, um, sent directly to the podcast, and it's, it probably is the most important um, message I've received. It actually involves some major housekeeping for the last podcast, episode 18. And of the strength of it, I think I might have to re-record the entire podcast. Well, that sounds a bit dramatic. It is actually a conflict of facts. But I'm going to read the message. So this is what John Martinson's put. He's put, Chris, I enjoy your podcasts. I am a fellow non-expert that enjoys learning. My studies focus on mathematics and system modelling, physics, philosophy, geology, and most recently, anthropology and early history. That's not all that much, is it, John? Blimey. Um, My background is electrical engineering, but I always believe uh, it's wise to and interesting to expand one's horizons. Well, you certainly sound like you're doing that. He then goes on to speak to me about some of the books that he reads, but probably the most important paragraph is this one. I had one comment for you on your latest podcast, 18, Discovery of Metals, regarding the formation of the element copper. I may have misunderstood this part, but as I understand it, heavier elements are made in supernovas or neutron star collisions and lighter elements are formed within stars. And it is believed helium and hydrogen were formed in the Big Bang. However, I don't believe any are formed in tectonic plates. That being said, tectonic plates are often great locations to find metals and other materials, such as volcanic glass, that would be valuable to humans. So, let me try and clear this up. It's an excellent email, John, and probably one of the most important ones that I've been sent so far. So let me try and clear this whole thing up. Um, astrophysics really not um, it's, it's not really something I've studied hugely. A number of years ago, I did study it um, briefly uh, when I was writing uh, material for another website. This is um, really my understanding. I think I've really mixed up two scientific anomalies and I'll try and clear it up now. So if we go by the Big Bang Theory, we believe that hydrogen atoms were created during the Big Bang or in the aftermath of the Big Bang and such was the excitement in the initial phases of the creation of the universe that the hydrogen atoms, very excited, um, were able to become helium atoms by combining with each other and various isotopes of hydrogen, helium and even lithium, which are the lightest elements in our universe. When stars began to form by um, a coalescence of material in a particular area and sucked together by its own own gravity, I should say, um, basically what happened is the pressure was so high within these balls of um, energy, which we refer to as our stars, that the chemicals and the elements were colliding with each other at such a vast 
rate that it was able to produce heavier elements. So it is believed that inside stars, the formation of the 26 lightest elements can be created, and that's right up to iron. So what happens when a sun burns all its hydrogen is it starts to collapse in on itself and that pressure creates the heavier elements right up into uh, elements such as nickel and iron. The larger stars will even uh, go further than that and totally collapse to the point where they will actually explode and that explosion is a place where the pressure is so high that you create the heaviest elements that we found, find in our universe. So copper, silver, gold, all of those are created when that star explodes. And all of these elements are then expelled across the universe. And that's pretty much when a star goes supernova. And, and not all stars go supernova, only large ones. Our, our own sun will not go supernova. It's just not big enough. These larger stars will go supernova. And that's the environment where these heavy elements are created. It's at that point all of these um, elements such as copper, silver, gold, then coalesces and becomes part of our planet. When it's first forming, these elements become trapped into this coalescence of material that becomes planet Earth. Then what happens is stuff that has stuff that happens like tectonic plate movements and volcanic eruptions brings these trapped elements to the surface um, of the planet. So that's where we discover copper ores, gold ores, silver ores, and that's a second type of science uh, so, or so, second type of scientific occurrence so it's actually referencing two separate things so the formation of the element is one thing and the the actual process of that element being brought to the earth's surface the, the, the element being made apparent to us in the ores that we've discovered I've got those two things mixed up during episode 18 and I apologise and this is a massive bit of housekeeping and I hope I've explained it reasonably well so that it sort of covers up the patches but ultimately I think I'll end up re-recording episode 18 so that it does make proper sense. All I can say, John Martinson, thank you very, very much. I also received an email from T.D. Allman, the very, very famous um, American journalist who's uh, interviewed some very uh, highly regarded political figures over the last few decades. And uh, he actually got in touch with me. He seemed more interested in who who I am, you know. who Who is this mysterious guy, Chris, who's publishing this... Um, ambitious podcast well the reason why I don't really talk about myself a lot is because I think the information that I'm presenting is the most important thing and the, the fact that I'm not a qualified um, historian really just does mean that um, I think 
you know, I'm not the important one here. The, the information's the important one here. And if, you know, if ultimately people do want to find out more about me, then I probably will disclose that. And, you know, it's no secret, but I just don't think I'm that important when compared to the stuff that I'm presenting. And that's pretty much the reason why. John WSU was kind enough to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, uh, stating an excellent, well-researched podcast. I am through all of the episodes and cannot wait for the next one. Chris does a great job of describing the beginning of Homo sapiens and has definitely done his research. He presents a complicated subject in a very easy-to-understand manner. That's That's the goal of the podcast. I've said it before, so I'm glad I'm succeeding to some degree. Well... That was a lot of housekeeping, and uh, that's the end of the podcast. I'm going to wrap it up now. Thanks for listening. Next time, more megaliths and the amazing Stonehenge. Speak to you next week. The History of the World podcast is hosted by Audioboom. It is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, Podcast Republic, Stitcher and TuneIn. You can also find it on Deezer, Google Podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter.